Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary Podcast. We're continuing our series titled Presence. Throughout this series, we are learning to become aware of the divine in our midst. Today, Pastor Jason Coker shares a teaching from Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, titled Solidarity. So we're going to continue this morning with our teaching on the presence of God. We've been talking through what it means as followers of Christ to engage with the presence of God, what it means for us to somehow experience God's, uh, a sense of God's being with us. Now, this is something we talk about a lot, I think, as Christians. We talk sort of casually about it. We come together in settings like this, and we say things that must be infuriating to others, like, oh, you know, I was really sensing God's presence with us today, or God really spoke to me today, or, you know, I really felt God leading me in this way today. And I've noticed as a Christian that we often use that language in in very casual ways that can be often quite confusing. And, you know, what's happening there, of course, is that as we come together as people, we tend to use language in ways that creates an us and a them. Like, that's what we do with language. That's literally how language works. We use phrases and words in very particular ways to create a community. And the whole point of a community from a human perspective is to have an us and a them so that we know that we belong to the right us and we know that the wrong people aren't a part of us. So that's where this gets really tricky because as followers of Christ, Christ eradicated those barriers. And so one of the problems we have is that we often use language in ways that creates those divisions, those barriers, those sort of out groups. Um, But we do it around this person who really embodies the eradication of us versus them barriers. And so our use of that language can be really tricky. It's also tricky because for, for some folks, talking about being in the presence of God is just like intellectually problematic, right? Like when we talk about God being here among us and with us, if you're anything like me, right? Like I'm a very analytical person and I'm an Enneagram type five, if that means anything to you. I want to understand how everything works, right? I want to take everything apart and analyze it and figure out and categorize it and then like teach everybody else how all that works. That's, that's how like, I meet God, right? Uh, but many of us aren't that way. And so we sort of take that language for granted on the one hand, or on the other hand, we're confused by it. We're like, oh, Jason is experiencing God in some way that I'm not. Jason's talking about God speaking to him and being in the room with him, and I'm not experiencing that same thing, so I must not be experiencing God, or God must not like me or love me or approve of me in some way. So our use of language in this way can be really difficult. So I've spent this whole series, and Alex too, we've spent this whole series really trying to pick apart what we mean when we talk about being with God. And we've been doing it through the perspective of Scripture, because as Christians, that's what we do. We gather around Scripture and try to understand what God's revealing to us. So today we're going to look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. We're going to talk about the importance of solidarity in our practice of experiencing the presence of God. So before we revisit the passage that Larry read for us earlier, would you just pray with me? So Father, we thank you again for today and for this opportunity for us to come together and to uh, turn our attention to you, to open our hearts and our minds to you, 
to learn as a group of people to somehow tune into a sense of your presence in our midst. We are convinced, one way or the other, God, that you are here, that there is some sense of divine love and power and purpose weaving in and out of our lives. We struggle sometimes to understand that, and so we ask today, God, that you would peel back the curtain and reveal another aspect of what it means for us to be with you, for us to be in your midst. And we ask that as we come into your midst today that you would begin to change us in ways that help us to be healthier, that help us to be useful to others, that help us to be a little bit closer to how you've created us to be. I pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, yesterday was our second uh, Sunday or second Saturday homeless resource fair. Uh, yes, but it's the second Saturday homeless resource fair. It was actually the third one we've done. Uh, Vanessa and her crew work very hard to organize those. They do a great job. It was really an amazing day. I, it, it's uh, fun to see an event where there are so many people coming together, gathered around the same purpose. And in this case, the purpose is to express love and hope to anybody who shows up there, but especially to people who show up who normally might be excluded from a sense of love or hope. And what's really unique to me, I think, about these events as they're starting to really shape up is, is we shifted from like a weekly dinner to this monthly resource fair for a couple reasons. One of those reasons was because we wanted to expand our reach, our sense of connectedness beyond just the folks who were putting on a dinner. And so one of the things that Vanessa and her uh, crew have done beautifully is really bring in other uh, partners and other folks from the community to do that. One of the practical consequences is that we have as many volunteers at these events as we do people who are in need. And that has been a really lovely surprise for me because what it means is in practice, you don't have a couple of people like rolling up their sleeves and like helping and fixing people in need, right? What you have is this sort of big mishmash of crazy people and they're really crazy. Um, and I'm talking about the volunteers, right? Like they're really nutty. Uh, you get this really interesting mishmash of all different kinds of people. People have a heart for other people one way or another. And you know, it's a little chaotic, right? It's like coming apart around the edges a little bit, but in the best possible way. Uh, and so yesterday we had this really interesting mishmash of folks. And one of the things that I've noticed about settings like that is uh, how people interact with folks who are very different than they are. And maybe you've had this experience. Uh, so if you are like me, right, fairly privileged white middle-class man, uh, you have been raised to recognize certain like signals of uh, certain indicators that people aren't safe to be around. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right, so we tend to treat people who don't have as much money as we do as though there's something wrong with them is what I'm saying. We tend to treat people who don't have a house to live in as though there's something broken about them that really needs to be fixed. 
And in doing that, we tend to sort of objectify them as homeless people or poor people. And it's really interesting for me to watch how when you put those kinds of folks in a space together, how they interact with each other. Because we've all been raised to recognize the signals of people who are poor or homeless and interpret those signals as, well, this is a person who isn't quite safe. And then what we do when people come here is we say, hey, go down to the basement and have breakfast or go out to the parking lot and you know, find some resources that you might need. And what this inevitably does is put people in close proximity with others that they might be afraid of because they've been socialized to be afraid of poor people or homeless people or people of color. This is how we're raised to use language in ways that create us versus them. And so it's just interesting to watch people come to grips with those socialized fears in their lives. And so that event is a great way to see that kind of thing in action. One of the things that's super gratifying to me is when I show up at the, at the resource fair and there are people from all levels of income and all statuses of living who are sitting down at a table eating together like just eating breakfast together. Uh, and yesterday, we had some folks show up and say uh, to me, hey, how can we help? What can we do? How can we get involved? And I said, I don't know. Let's find Vanessa. So we went and found Vanessa. And we said, and we said, Vanessa, what, you know, here's so-and-so. What can we do? How can, we, how can this person get involved? And Vanessa said, you know, I think everything's covered. Why don't you just go grab some breakfast and sit down and eat with somebody? And I thought that was just so brilliant. Because sometimes the very best thing that you can do for another human being is just eat with them. You know, to say, I accept you for who you are. Here I am sharing a meal with you. So Paul is, I think, getting at some of that same sentiment in Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. We're going to go ahead and read through that again. I know Larry already read it, but there are a couple things I want to point out. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7 says this, Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. Now, I want to focus a bit on the second half of that, right? Because Paul is saying that we ought to have a certain posture in life, a certain posture towards other people. And he takes Christ, Jesus, as our model for that. And then he goes on to explain what Jesus's sort of posture was. Even though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. What's interesting about Jesus is that when he came and enacted his ministry, he didn't come and serve the poor or fix the poor. He came as the poor. He was one of them. And what I find fascinating about that is Jesus didn't become the poor in order to fix the poor. He became the poor in order to show the rich what was wrong with them. And that's a... That's a Jesus twist on things. 
I love that, that passage where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know, keep the commandments. Love, love God and love your neighbor and, you know, don't cheat people. And he says, I've done all these things. What else do I have to do? And Jesus said, well, sell all your possessions and come and follow me. And the rich young ruler is tripped up by that. This is where Jesus utters that famous saying, you know, foxes have holes in the ground and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus was saying, you know, all of these people that you have separated yourself from, all these people that I have gathered into my community, join that community. And the ruler leaves. He can't follow Christ's example to be found in the form of a slave, living with and serving others over his own interests. For me, that's terribly challenging. There's this phrase in here that I think is really instructive for understanding how it is that Christ adopts this posture or explains a kind of theological concept that we sometimes talk about uh, when we're talking about who God is and how God acts and who Christ is and how it is that Christ came to act the way he did. It's found right here towards the second half of this passage where it says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, comma, which isn't, of course, in the Greek, but it's helpful for us, right? Comma, but emptied himself. That short little phrase, that short little throwaway phrase in Philippians chapter 2, but emptied himself, utilizes the Greek word kenosis. And kenosis literally means emptying out. And here's what's really beautiful about that sort of theological image of God. What Paul's saying in Philippians chapter 2 is that when God became Christ, when God incarnated God's self as a human being, that what actually happened there, right, peels back the curtain a little bit to see the mechanism behind that. Paul's saying what happened there is that God broke God's self open and poured God's self out upon the world utterly and completely, becoming Christ. So God emptied himself. Thomas Merton is a little bit famous for saying, the essence of faith is the begging bowl. Imagine a beggar on the side of the road with a bowl, seated, and as you walk by, simply asking for you to give. Will you please help me? Will you give? Will you express some compassion for me? Will you express some solidarity with me? Thomas Merton, who was a Catholic monk, said, that's really the essence of faith. The essence of faith is the bare, naked trust to put your need out there as emptiness and to believe that there is something out there, some goodness, some presence, some kindness, some love, some compassion that will then fill that bowl and meet your need. That's faith. Faith is the act of putting your empty self out there and receiving what God has to give back. Paul says, amazingly, scandalously, I think, that's actually what God did too. God emptied himself out upon the world. 
that God's incarnation in the form of Christ was a kind of act of faith. And that Christ then embodies that same posture. Christ, in coming and ministering to the needs of others, in coming and forming community with others that we tend to be afraid of, in coming and living among us, that Christ emptied himself for our good, for our benefit. Kenosis, essentially a, an act of selfless giving. Now, there are a lot of ways that we think about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. But one thing that Philippians 2 points us to is this idea that when Christ was crucified on the cross, when Christ was incarnated, that when Christ was resurrected, what Christ was doing was essentially a divine cosmic act of solidarity with us. God was not standing at a distance judging us for our failings. God was instead climbing into the mud and the muck and the dirt and the filth and the sin and the brokenness and the depravity and the fragility of human life and partaking of it and being crucified for it. One way to understand the crucifixion is that God came to earth and experienced all the corruption and violence that we had to unleash upon each other and he absorbed it in himself. It's the ultimate act of solidarity. Jesus tells us this is how we experience the presence of God too. Jesus tells us we experience the presence of God when we do the same thing on behalf of others. When we see human need, rather than simply judging it from a distance or trying to fix it and thereby feel powerful, that our job is to serve those needs in a way that joins us with those people. In Matthew 25, he says it this way, whatever you've done to the least of these, you have done to me. I don't know if you've thought much about that whole passage, but basically what Jesus is saying is, if you want to be in the presence of God, then pick those who are the lowest and most despised and most broken and most hurting and spend time with them that's how you spend time with me. By expressing solidarity, by standing with those, by standing on behalf of those who are hurting the most, who are the most in need. And we do that, of course, because we realize that they're us. There's this meme running around on Facebook that I just love, right? It says, you know, every one of us is three bad months away from being homeless. But almost none of us is three good months away from being rich. That's solidarity. Solidarity says, I don't show up the second Saturday of every month at Oceanside Sanctuary in order to fix poor people. I show up because I am poor people. They're my people. We are a part of that community. And the best way for us to be in God's presence is to identify with those who are broken and meek because we realize that we're just that close to being in the same situation. Uh, I like the way Albert Schweitzer puts this. Can you just jump to the next slide? Albert Schweitzer was a French theologian, 
uh, first half of the 20th century, he said, the first step in the evolution of ethics is a sense of solidarity with other human beings. Now, all Schweitzer is saying here is that the first step in you becoming a person who expresses the will of God in your life every day, in your relationships, in the way you treat people, is simply the realization that other people are worthy of being treated well, just like you. There really is no us and them. There really isn't. It doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. It doesn't matter how you vote or what your political philosophies are. It doesn't matter whether or not yesterday you trolled somebody on Facebook or somebody trolled you on Facebook. It doesn't matter if you are feeling deeply ashamed of your broken, brokenness and your failings or if you're the kind of person who likes to use shame to control and manipulate others. We are all still human. And all the things that we do all the ways that we use community and beliefs and language and ideas to create differences between us and to build walls between us, all of that is vanity at best. Wickedness at worst. And so I think Schweitzer, like Paul, would say, you want to experience the presence of God? Be with those who are not like you. Be with those who you would tend to judge. Be with those who scare you. And learn to love them in spite of all of that. Alex already said it today, but that's why we're here. Practically, in our relationships, I think that means a couple of things. One, it means that when we come into contact with people that seem unsafe to us, that tend to signal to us that they're not part of the same group that we are, that maybe they might, might not believe the same things that we believe or think the same things that we think. I think we, we tend to have a couple of impulses. The first impulse is to run or avoid them at all costs. I think it's a spiritual discipline to learn to cultivate the opposite response. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying, like, put yourselves in physical danger. There are some places you probably shouldn't go and some crowds you probably shouldn't hang out with without some support. But most of the time, most days of the week, we conjure up fears that are irrational, that have nothing to do with anything other than propping up our own ego. So cultivate the impulse to go the other direction, to sit next to somebody who's different than you are, to share a meal with somebody from a different social class, to have a conversation with somebody who sits on the other side of the political aisle. Practice the impulse to not run, but to embrace them. The other thing that I think we sometimes do is we have that impulse to judge them and therefore to justify ourselves. I think it's important that we learn to cultivate the, the practice of listening to people who are different than we are. That doesn't mean that we agree with them. It doesn't mean that we change our minds in order to keep the peace. But it does mean that we're willing to hear them out. It means we're willing to treat them with dignity no matter who they are. Maybe you, like me, are on Twitter. And maybe your Twitter feed, like mine, 
is full of shame and condemnation. Just don't do that. You don't have to. There are better ways to relate to fellow human beings than to call each other out on social media. This, I think, is where we practice that. You're sitting next to somebody who really disagrees with you about something. Maybe they disagree with you about, like, Bernie. Maybe they disagree with you about eating meat. Maybe they disagree with you about the fact that we let kids come up here and receive communion if their parents are okay with that. Maybe they really disagree with you about, like, the fact that we have guitars on stage and blue lights shining up on the ceiling. Or maybe they disagree with the way that you parent your children. Whatever those disagreements are, none of that really matters in light of who Christ was and what Christ did. Paul is saying, let's reorient our lives according to that model. And if we do, we come into the presence of Christ. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you again for today. We thank you for these words that challenge us and inspire us and sometimes uh, cause us to be uncomfortable. We pray that you would um, make this into a place where we can come and share a seat with somebody who is very different than we are. We pray that you would make this into a place where we can move past our fears and past our shame, past our judgment, past our egos, and instead learn to empty ourselves out on behalf of one another. We pray that as we learn to do that, as we learn to empty ourselves, we pray that you would respond by filling our empty vessels with a sense of your presence. that we would learn to put aside all the ways that we create differences and we would experience instead a sense of your love and your reconciliation and your healing as you turn us into a group of people who know how to love, know how to sit in your presence in ways that really transform each of us individually and all of us collectively together into a group of people who really do make this a better community, who really do make this a better world just because we're in it. We confess that we need you to do that work. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.